Gracious God, we ask that you would speak to us today, that you would encourage us, that you would challenge us, that you would ultimately help us become more like Jesus. Help us follow him better. Help us look to him more. Help us be closer to him. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus the Christ. Amen. A couple weeks back now, we received an email from one of our school principals. Now, to be fair, we have four kids, so we get principal letters all the time. But this one was a little bit different. Uh, it said uh, they wanted us to be aware that our campus was visited by the police department as a precautionary measure in response to an individual loitering in the parking lot behind our campus. While there is no reason to believe the man intended any harm to our campus, we take all reports of suspicious activity very seriously. And then the letter went on to give some helpful tips to talk about with your kids. Never talk to a stranger. If a stranger tries to talk to you, run away and find the nearest trusted adult. If the stranger attempts to follow you, continue running and yell, stranger danger. Uh, walk to and from school in groups. Never accept a ride without first getting permission from your parents. Never take shortcuts. And on and on and on the letter went. Let me add, right here at the beginning, all of those are very good precautionary measures to take. But let's us take a step back for a second. And here's my question. What kind of adults do we create by teaching that every stranger is dangerous? If stranger danger is all that we have been fed since the 1980s, how do we learn to trust anyone new? If we teach that all strangers are only dangers, then I can only imagine that we're not going to want to have anything to do with strangers, let alone be the kind of people that encounter strangers or let alone bring Jesus to strangers. And that said, this is confusing. We tell our kids, don't talk to strangers, but then in the grocery store, we want them to greet people and be friendly to them in a very polite way. But mom, they're strangers. How do you do, what do you, how do you explain that? We tell our kids, do not take candy from strangers unless it's Halloween, and then go ahead and just go door to door and get as much as you want. <laughs> what are they to do with that? I saw an, an internet meme of a couple weeks ago that made me laugh. In the 1990s, we were told, do not get in a car with strangers. In the 2000s, we were told, do not meet people from the internet by yourself. And in 2010, we got Uber. And now you can order yourself a stranger from the internet and get into their car by yourself. It's confusing. But again, the bigger question that, I'm, that I want us to ask is, but what does it do in us? In the book I've been quoting from a lot in this series, The Power of Strangers, it tells of the, the Samai people who live in the mountains of central Malaysia, and they fear everything. Strangers, supernatural beings, storms, animals, virtually everything in their culturally constituated uh, environment is viewed as actually or potentially threatening. For the Samai, laughing at a butterfly or uttering the word for dragonfly is, is just an invitation for calamity. The children are trained to be fearful. 
When an unfamiliar person, Samai or not, appears in the hamlet, mothers snatch their children away, crying, afraid, afraid. They tell their children hair-raising tales about what will happen if Samai fail to protect one another from strangers. Samai adults think that children need to learn to fear, to flee friendly strangers, to trust no one and nothing not already intimate. And the author concludes, the fear has become the culture. Moving back to us, what does our fear of strangers do inside of us? What culture does that create? Does that calcify our hearts sometimes? And more importantly, does it ever keep us from becoming more like Jesus? And of course, that's not to say that our world is safe, because clearly it's not. It was last week, Saturday, that there was a shooting right here in a hospital in the Metroplex. A couple days later, there was a shooting in a school in St. Louis. And so how do you reconcile all of this? How do you reconcile these dangerous realities with a series talking about welcoming a stranger? What are we to do? Do we ignore and disregard? Do we arm up and lock down? Do we run and hide? Of course, the opposite doesn't always sound much better. Fling wide the gates and invite anyone and everyone in. Greet and care for and welcome even, especially, the stranger. So what do we do? What does Jesus teach? While we think about that, let me remind you where we are and where we're going. Today we're coming to the end of the second part of this huge series, learning about and talking about strangers. And again, in many ways, we're using our views and beliefs about strangers to give us more clarity about ourselves and our own beliefs. Because how I see the stranger tells me a lot more about me than it does about them. I wonder for you, who do you see as a stranger? What kinds of people are you quicker to view as strangers? How do you treat strangers? When do you avoid people that you don't know? And what does that say about how we view the world? Have we made people into strangers? And if so, could we go the other way? Could we turn strangers into guests, guests into acquaintances, acquaintances into friends? Friends, maybe even into family. How do we start to welcome the stranger better, encounter the stranger better, include the stranger better, let alone care for them and maybe even today love them better? Because maybe this is how we are changed. And maybe this is how we change the world. So if you would, I would invite you and encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 10, verse 1. Luke 10, 1. While you're turning there, I will let you know that we are primarily looking at the middle part of this huge passage, talking about the parable of the Good Samaritan. That's in the middle. But I want us to put it all in context. Because just prior to that parable, Luke tells a story about how Jesus sent his disciples out two by two 
and allowed them to take very little with them. And then he goes on to tell them he's sending them out like lambs among wolves, which doesn't seem like a very Jesus-y thing to do. What's more, they'll have to rely on the hospitality of, of all people, strangers, since they will be strangers. Then we're going to get to our parable, and then at the end, we will find Jesus invited into the house of Mary and Martha. But as far as I can tell, this is when they meet. In other words, Jesus is a stranger that is invited in. Now, he's also a well-known teacher, so it's not totally a blind invite here, but, but that said, he may not have completely been known. Plus, let's face it, they're also inviting in the disciples and those guys. They're, 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 they're not as kosher. So our parable will be bookended by these pictures of hospitality and welcome for the stranger. Let's read. Luke chapter 10, verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals and do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. Stay there, eating and drinking whatever they give you. For the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is offered to you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. But when you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town we wipe from our feet as a warning to you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it would be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. Whoever listens to you listens to me. Whoever rejects you rejects me, but whoever rejects me rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, I, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the powers of the enemies. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, and no one knows who the Father is except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Then He turned to His disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see but did not see it, and to hear what you hear but did not hear it. 
On one occasion, an expert of the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the wall replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Amen. Okay, that was a long passage, but today we're primarily looking at that middle part, the parable of the Good Samaritan, probably one of the most famous parables that Jesus tells. But let's see what it may say to us today in light of this series, because it may be surprising. We start by simply the, the context. An expert in the Jewish law, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, <clears throat> gets up to test Jesus. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And just because it stood out, I find the word inherit interesting. He seems to be asking, what is he supposed to do so that he can be a part of a group that will be gifted eternal life? What will get me in? What's the price I have to pay? Who do I have to become? What do I have to join? And Jesus returns the question back, what do you think? The man answers, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. Jesus says, great, good answer. But the lawyer didn't want to let Jesus off that easily, and he wanted to justify himself, which never is a good idea. And so he asks another question. Well, then who is my neighbor? Because clearly it's not just the people who live in close proximity to my property. Clearly it's not just the people who are already just like me. And in typical Jewish and Jesus fashion, the answer is found in a story. 
Uh, a man was going from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, since most of you don't know that road very well, especially what that road looked like 2,000 years ago, it's a, a winding road with bad visibility. What's more, it was sometimes known as the way of blood because bandits would sometimes hide on the way and then jump out and rob travelers or worse. And so we're not surprised then that that is exactly what happens to our guy. Attacked, robbed, beaten, left for dead. That's the setup of the story. But luckily, there are some heroes on the way. And there's a good chance that, that they don't know what happened to this man, so we'll have to see what happens. They also don't know the state of this man. He could be in need of aid. He could be already dead. He could be part of the robber gang. In other words, this could just be a trap. You get down to examine the man, and you're searching for a pulse, and 12 thugs come up behind you and search for your purse, and you quickly become the victim. All that to say, there's no part of this story that's safe. Helping is a huge risk. Because really, all we know is that there were robbers here recently. Whether this guy's a part of it or not, we don't know. But there were, the robbers aren't far gone. Jesus continues. But wait, there's hope. A priest and then a Levite are coming down the road. Thank God someone will help this poor man. Except they don't. And that makes sense because pastors are terrible people. Um, or, more likely, they don't want to make themselves unclean by, by touching a possibly dead body. Or maybe they just don't want to be inconvenienced because they're just too busy. They have important things to do. Or they just don't want to be duped because, remember, this could be a trap. Or maybe it's just it's not Sunday and pastors only work on Sunday, so they're technically off duty. So I don't have to be kind today. It's my day off. Alas, our man doesn't get any help from the good guys. And then Jesus, the masterful storyteller, picks the most despised, disliked, detested person he can think of. He picks the other. He picks someone from that group, those guys. He picks, in that context, a Samaritan. And I wonder if it was in our context, if he's really simply picking the stranger, the person we don't recognize, the person we don't know, the person we don't like, the person who's different, the person who's distant, the person who's strange. And Jesus makes that guy the hero. The Samaritan is traveling along, he comes to the man, he sees him, he takes pity on him, and he cares for him, bandaging his wounds, bringing him out of danger, getting the man help. And let's recognize that as the Samaritan does all of this, he's doing it for a stranger. Because we don't know anything about the guy who's, who got robbed. He's just beaten up and left for dead, that's all we know. But in that, the reality is that he is the other stranger in this story. And so this guy is helping a stranger, loving a stranger. And Jesus concludes, go and do likewise. Go be more like this stranger and go love the stranger. Now remember the question ultimately, that Jesus is answering, love your neighbor as yourself, and who is my neighbor? 
Jesus tells the story, tweaks the question a little. Who was a neighbor to the man? And the expert in the wall responds, the one who had mercy. He can't even speak the name Samaritan, but he can point to the, the, the third guy. And Jesus simply commands, go and do likewise. As if we are to be the kind of people who love like that. As if we are to be the kind of people who serve like that. If we are to be the kind of people who have mercy, show mercy like that. Even to strangers. I find the Samaritan's good example to be a challenge to how I often live my life. Especially as I think about all of the excuses I make so that I don't have to love like that. And those reasons quickly become in stark contrast to what we see in the Samaritan. He went, he saw, he took pity, and he cared for the man. And yet so often I don't go and I don't see and I don't take pity because I don't care. And then I blame it on the fact that I'm too busy or too scared. I mean, the reality is I don't actually care. But that's not a good excuse. A better excuse is I'm too busy or I'm scared. I just don't have the time. I don't have the space. I don't have the margin in my life. What's more, I can always think of a reason not to help. That's easy. I can always think of something more important. Anything I'm doing is more important by, by definition. Uh, I can always choose to not see more. And yet, the Samaritan in the story makes the time. The Samaritan was busy enough that he had to leave the man in the thing, and then he had to go, and I'm going to come back because I'm, I'm busy doing things. I'll come back and pay you for, for whatever else. What other. He was busy enough, but he made the time. Or, or I'll tell myself, safe would be to stay away. Smart would be to hurry past. Spiritual would be to cross on the other side. Plus, I'm scared that I won't know what to do. I won't know what to say. I won't know how to help. And what if it's a bigger problem that I can't even solve? Then what? Then I'm just in it. Then I'm stuck. Let's remember that we're talking about loving a stranger here. And so my fear keeps me from loving like Jesus loves. But Jesus' point seems to be that we are to be the kind of people who stop and care, and love, even the stranger. This is how we live like Jesus. This is how we bring the kingdom of God. This is how we are to love our neighbors. Henry Nouwen wrote it this way, Love is stronger than fear. Life stronger than death. Hope stronger than despair. We have to trust that the risk of loving is always worth taking. I'll say that again. Love is stronger than fear, life stronger than death, hope stronger than despair. We have to trust that the risk of loving is always worth taking. Because here's the thing. That's what Jesus did. That's what Jesus does even for us. 
Jesus loved even through fear. Jesus loved even through despair. Jesus loved even through death. Because for some reason, he believed that we were worth the risk. And it's why we become then a people who love others. It's why we become a people who bring that kingdom come. We become a people who love not just our neighbors, but our strangers. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you love us like that. That Jesus risked himself in love on us. We pray that we would learn to do that better. And Lord, we confess that we live in a world of fear. We live in a world where uh, there is terror on every side. Plus, we're busy. Plus, we don't know what to do. And yet, maybe you are calling us to be different. Maybe you are calling us to change the world. And maybe that starts by becoming a people who love and serve and care. Lord, we're going to need your help. We're going to need you to open up our eyes. We're going to need you to help us be creative. We're going to need you to help us, inspire us. We're going to need you to be moving through us so that you might love someone through us. Lord, help us know that you are with us. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus the Christ. Amen.